This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Many of us turn toward home or things that remind us of it. Maybe you make that traditional holiday treat of your ancestry or dust off a special piece of decor that represents family identity. Medina Tanur Whiteman's new memoir is about struggling to find a place where she feels at home. Her predicament is unusual. She's an American citizen, but never lived here. She's a UK citizen, but doesn't live there either. Even more confounding, she's white and blonde and a lifelong Muslim. The Invisible Muslim is the title of her memoir. Medina Tanur Whiteman currently lives in Granada, Spain, with her husband, who's from Iran, and their children. She's a poet, musician, and author. And she's with me now. Medina Tanur Whiteman, thank you so much for taking time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me, Julie. Could you share an example from your life that illustrates this sense of of not belonging? The book is full of them, but I'll just let you choose something to illustrate that. Well, off the top of my head, thinking back to being at school, I went to quite a large high school. There was about 1,200 kids. Um, There were like three people of color in the whole school. So it was very, very, very much majority white. And the only other Muslims in the school, apart from me and my sister, was one Pakistani family who we never really coincided with because we didn't really, our parents didn't know one another. We just didn't happen to share any classes together. We were in different years. And so, they didn't even know that we were Muslim because we didn't kind of outwardly identify in that way. Like I wasn't mm. wearing hijab. You wouldn't have guessed. You, I mean, I suppose somebody would hear my name and they would go, oh, hang on, that's an Arabic name. But often people would just be like, oh, she's just a little bit weird. I was like the Phoebe, you know, people just would sort of <laughs> um, <laughs> write me off as, you know, that weird girl that has lots of hippie beads and sort of. I felt like I, t- I sort of had to suppress a lot. I had to suppress a lot of things um, to feel that you can't um, speak about something that is very dear to your heart is, is a very difficult thing. It makes you feel really suffocated, like you're gagged. And I think that in a way, though, it was what helped push me towards being a writer, because when you don't feel like you can speak, another way that you can get those words out is by writing. So your, your parents converted to Islam. Um, Tell us briefly why they did that. What what was it that drew them to Islam? Well, my dad was a, a musician. He he had been living in in London. He was part of a sort of jazz scene, and then that moved into prog rock, sort of psychedelic rock. And then one of his um, and one of the bands he was in, which was called Mighty Baby, one of the band members had become Muslim actually, but in secret he hadn't told the rest of the band members. And they were on tour and uh, they were in a bus, as, you know, bands traditionally do. And they went around a corner and this big heavy book fell off uh, the sort of top, um, you know, rack and hit my dad on the head. And he found out later it was a Quran. (laughs) But at the time, he didn't know anything about it at all. But he had this friend, a band member who eventually they got talking and his, you know, the, the friend sort of started opening up about it. And in the end... All of the band members, but one, became Muslim. And um, for him, it was definitely to do with music. He was introduced to Moroccan music, which is uh, heavily influenced by Andalusi music, the music of the the Muslims of Spain who were exiled um, during the, well, after the fall of Al-Andalus in sort of 1492, in the sort of 1500s, 1600s. So they, they brought their culture with them and there's this sort of syncretic, it's a very beautiful mixed culture in particularly in the north of Morocco. And they have this, this very beautiful singing styles. They've maintained their tunes. Sometimes the songs themselves have been lost, the words have been lost, but the tunes themselves, the melodies have been retained. And, and for your father, this was more than a cultural conversion. He, he became Muslim uh, uh, spiritually yeah. as well. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, because he he was attracted to the music because he felt that there was something really transcendent about it and that got him interested. And then he started reading and then he started finding out more. Mm. And but but initially that kind of sparked the key for him was was music because this was kind of a language that he understood. Yeah. And your mother was American. What drew her to Islam? Well, she'd been like like I think many of her contemporaries, she'd been really interested in different forms of spirituality. Sort of in the seventies, she was drawn to vipassana, to Buddhism, um, and then at that time there were some Sufi um, communities that had started setting up shop in in North America. And um, particularly, I think initially there were the Chishti and the Chishti um, Sufis, and so she started hearing about them. It kind of in that set of that circuit of um, seekers. And attended a few of their gatherings and was sort of like just kind of intrigued. She was she was drawn because she was really interested in finding a way of transcending her sort of, I guess, personal personal issues, I think, mm. is probably a fair, a, a fair way of putting it. Mm. And so you were born then Muslim. Uh, how did your parents end up in Spain where you were born? So they had been part of, they were previously married to other people and then they had both divorced. My dad had moved to, to America to, to work. He's, he was an architect, so he'd been hired to do some, um, to oversee some building work in um, San Antonio, Texas. My mom, meanwhile, being a very bookish person, which must be where I get my bookishness comes from, she had been hired to run a bookshop in the same kind of place, the same center. And that's how they met. So then they they married and ended up, they ended up initially in in England in uh, Norwich, and then there was a kind of a number of people who were sort of migrating to Granada because Granada was really like the the seat of Al Andalus in the, in its latter centuries. It's kind of like uh, the jewel of Al Andalus. Many describe it as. So there's a lot of nostalgia about Granada, quite understandably. There's the Alhambra. There's a lot of a lot of beauty there. It's a very kind of culturally rich place, and a lot of Western Muslims also see it as as a sort of sign that here's an Islam that's European, it's rooted, it's, you know, it's culturally blended. It has elements from Syria, from Damascus, it has elements from Yemen, it has elements from North Africa, from the Berbers, Amazigh people, but it's also become something that is uniquely Andalusian. And that's always been very attractive, I think, to a lot of people. So there were a number of people traveling there at that time. Um, the community was a little bit fraught, though. There was not really enough work. It didn't quite kind of hold together well enough. So what was it kind of a um, an, an expatriate um, American British Muslim hippie commune? Yeah. I mean, what was going it, on there? It, yeah, it almost. I mean, that sounds a bit glamorous, really, but I think it was probably a bit more depressing than that. Mm. But um, because Spain had just come out of being um, ruled by, you know, a fascist dictatorship. So it was very kind of economically deprived, um, you know, culturally kind of quite stagnant as well. And so going into that, of course, it was a very cheap place to live, which was great, you know, if you're an, especially if you're an artist or any any kind of non-conformist to find a place that's cheap to live is great. Mm. Um, but there wasn't that sort of movement economically. But there was a community of Syrians who had who were living there and who were sort of more, I think they were more settled. But there were people from the US, so people from California. There was an indigenous American guy who was there as well for a short while. It was quite a, a sort of eclectic mix of people. Mm. But after a year or so, it was just too hard to make a make a go of it. So you're a baby. They you had you were given an Arabic name, Medina. Like, what was the role of Islam in your in in your family life? What was devotion like for your family? Well, I think a lot of it was it was very private because we we didn't really feel. I guess. I guess there are people who can go out and talk to 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 everyone about their faith very easily and not really mind if people kind of scorn you or whatever. But I think because they'd had quite a sort of baptism of fire, maybe that's a mixed metaphor there, but um, it had been quite a sort of rough ride for them in a way for the first few years. And so they sort of just made it like a retreat. It was like a sanctuary. Our home was like a sanctuary. And so Islam was like a sanctuary for me as well, really. So we'd pray together and we'd fast Ramadan. And, you know, there's sort of certain very sort of central elements of Islam, which are kind of communal. And um, yeah, I think I found that for me, praying was really, really valuable. I found that that was something I'd always go back to, even if 
there was actually a period when I was in France on a on a, an exchange and I just felt really awkward about staying in someone else's house and praying there because you know a lot of people have a lot of fear about Muslims and I mean they were a religious family they're actually a Mormon family but I don't think they would have minded but it just I had that embarrassment that feeling of kind of I, I can't share this with people publicly it was like being in the closet or something you know mm. so so then I would sort of go home and 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 uh, and make up my prayers because I just felt like that was something really nourishing for me you know to put my head on the ground and to just be like let it all kind of wash away you know um but then also get gathering we would usually gather about once a week and sing we'd sing these qasaid these uh, devotional songs devotional poems um which was also very i found like it was really that was really kind of a spiritual nourishment it was like manna in the desert you know you go through the week and you're working and you're doing homework and this and that and you're kind of busy 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 and then you go to something like that and it's like you kind of get recharged we have a bit of one of these devotional poems of you singing it you um like your father are a musician a beautiful singer guitar player here's just a clip of one of these devotional songs set to a folk tune Khair al Nazra ilayya khair al bariya nazra ilayla ma anta illa kanzul atiya ma anta illa kanzul atiya I'm speaking with Medina Tanur Whiteman, who is author of the new memoir, The Invisible Muslim, Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. This notion of being an invisible Muslim, Medina, um, did that feel like a problem for you or or an advantage, a, a benefit that you could sort of code switch when, you know, you could speak the language and sing the prayers in mosque when you're among Muslims and quote the Quran, but you could also sort of pass as a as a white Westerner, a non-Muslim, if you needed to. Right. Yeah. It, it brings up a lot of um, I think it brings up a lot of guilt in a way because uh, having racial privilege is something that it sort of became uh, I became aware of my whiteness, I think at quite a young age, because of being in Muslim circles where I would be with black people, with brown people, with Eastern Europeans, with a whole range of of people, with, uh, you know, Chinese people who are Muslim also. Um, Whereas at school, it was almost entirely white. It was almost exclusively white. So it sort of became, I guess, when you're very young, you don't really have the skills, the tools to or the, the sort of inner strength, usually, to be able to say, look, this is just how I am, and don't have any beef with me about it, you mm. know. So I would totally code switch, I would, uh, you know, allow people to think whatever they wanted of me. But if they would ask me, I would be very proud to say, yeah, actually, I'm Muslim, but I wouldn't really put it in people's faces, because it's quite a big conversation for a lot of people. Mm. Especially often, after 9-11. I mean, you were yeah, a exactly. 19 or 20-ish when September 11th happened, and you were living in the yeah. UK at the time. Um, what, how did things change for you at that point? And did you feel um, inclined to downplay your Muslim identity perhaps even more? In, in everyday um, encounters with people, particularly with strangers, I find you you have to how do i put this it takes a certain kind of person to sort of be right up there with everything about themselves and you know have those conversations with with a complete stranger straight off the bat you sort of have to have that really prepared and um, most of us were not really prepared to um to answer those questions mm particularly with the kind of vitriol that they often came with. Um, again, I, I understand that this comes out of ignorance. And so it, it is, I think what we realized at that moment was that we had to make efforts to educate and to be visible because the more you're invisible, like Audre Lord said, your silence won't save you. You know, at a certain point, you kind of have to go, actually, we need to be visible. We need to make people aware that this is who we are so that the really poisonous rhetorics of, you know, extremist Muslims don't take over the platforms. So there has to be sort of a, a 
because they're so marginal among Muslims, but they are very politically powerful because they're very well funded. So what you have to do is you have to say, well, we, we need to organize, we need to bring about some kind of grassroots cultural renaissance among Muslims. And this is what I'm seeing now. It's really bearing fruits, but I think it started then. I think it really started in the wake of 9-11. Medina Tanur Whiteman, you d- don't wear a headscarf all the time. The hijab, as it's called, is not, as you write in the book, is not something that you do or did. Was that decision born out of a concern for how people would treat you? Like, like kind of wanting to be invisible? Yeah, there's one side of it, which is, is I guess, I guess that's true to say. Another side of it is just, for me, wanting to be authentic, wanting to be who I am. And I am a Western person. I mean, I, you know, I even did a DNA test and found that I'm completely Western. And I was quite disappointed, actually. I thought, <laughs> come on, there must be something in there. But now I'm completely Western. And, um, you know, I went to a secular British school. I have this education. I went to university and I have this sort of critical mindset, which most of us have, having gone through that whole system. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, so in order for me to feel that it's that I am being whole, I guess to heal that that split feeling that I had growing up, in order to heal that, I have to find some way of kind of bringing these two sides together, bridging these two cultures, these two realities. And I feel that there are ways to do that, which for me personally, hijab, to to wear hijab every day would become my battle. It would be the thing that I am focusing a lot of my attention on and receiving a lot of attention about. And I feel actually I can use that energy. I feel I can use it better elsewhere in writing, in making music, in making poems, in helping to perhaps sow some seeds of ideas in people's minds, because it really does, it it creates a a huge burden. It's a psychic burden on a lot of women to to be feeling othered all the time, to have their, their differentness, their otherness always kind of highlighted and people staring at them or even the hostility that they might get because of it. It can, it can really drain you Mm. a lot. But do you worry that because you're a white woman, not visibly Muslim, that you um, that maybe you don't have the same? I don't know what the right word is, but you know that you're coming from a, a place. Legitimacy. Yeah, maybe the, a legitimacy. Sure. So, so if someone is critical, you know, if someone like no people aren't going to you. You talk about in, in the book about you know people have never like turned at you and ca- called you a terrorist like they might call a brown skinned person mm-hmm. wearing a headscarf or a turban, mm-hmm. um, or who looks clearly you know South Asian or, or Arabic. Um, on the other hand, though, someone might also, if you say, well, you know, don't say that I'm I'm Muslim, um, then they might be like, well, mm. but, you know, obviously you're harmless because you're white, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. Which and then you really haven't advanced the conversation either way. Right. Like, how have you how have you figured know, out what's your tri- voice? Very, diff- very difficult question to answer. I think the only way to figure out your voice is just to speak and keep speaking or keep writing if that's the the medium that you're speaking through and see where it takes you because it's very uncomfortable to be reduced to categories and I think that's what our tendency seems to be to sort of to place people in categories and because I naturally feel like I bridge two categories I feel quite allergic to that you know it's like sitting on a fence and eventually your butt starts hurting you know you can't start thinking <laughs> hang on does this fence need to exist can we can these be like circles on a Venn diagram you know that overlap and because we're all touching one another then we're all connected and that's that's the feeling that I really have and I think it, in my writing I try to I try to um, emphasize that you know I'm speaking with Medina Tanora Whiteman. She's uh, an author, a musician, a translator. Her her new book is The Invisible Muslim: Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. It's a it's a memoir. We have to take a really quick break here on Top of Mind. When we come back, we'll dive more deeply into what her experience as a white woman has been in the 
community of Islam in her travels around the world. Since you mentioned, Medina, that um, music and poetry are one of the ways that you bring together these two um, separate parts of your identity that are sometimes difficult to marry, the whiteness and the Islam, I'd like to play uh, a bit from one of the songs that you have written and performed. This is a song called Water. It features Mohammed Dominguez on percussion. We'll go ahead and take a break and listen to a bit of this for a moment. tuning into Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us. I'm speaking with Medina Tanur Whiteman. She is an author, a poet, a musician, a translator, and we're talking about her new memoir. It's called The Invisible Muslim Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. Medina Tanur Whiteman is white. She's blonde. She was born Muslim, Sufi Muslim. Her parents were converts to the faith. Her mother, American. Her father, British. She was born in Granada, Spain. Um, But she was raised in the UK, and she's now traveled around the world trying to find out how to marry her two contrasting identities of being a Muslim and also a white woman, uh, a Westerner. She currently lives in Granada, Spain, with her children and her husband, who is from Iran. So, Medina, tell us about the trip you took as a teenager with your family to Saudi Arabia. This was to do the Hajj, which is a very important ritual for Muslims, right? Yeah. Actually, I did the Umrah, which is the lesser pilgrimage. And it's something you can do in one day. It's in the space of a couple of hours um, in in Mecca, whereas the Hajj is something that goes on over a period of of days and you just do it once a year. So Umrah, you can do any time. And I went actually at the end of Ramadan. The last 10 days of Ramadan are a very special time. I was probably, I think I must have been 16 at the time. And here you were going into the heart of Islam. I mean, this is Saudi Arabia. Then and now women are required to veil and to wear mm-hmm. um, a covering over them to yeah, yeah. Uh, hide their form. Mm-hmm. What was that yeah, like? I guess as a 16-year-old, as a 16-year-old, you're very conscious of your appearance. And I was sort of really thinking a lot about my hair and like my, you know, my style and kind of trying to figure out what I looked like, what what kind of music I was into and how that reflected in my clothes and things like this. And so to wear, a, you know, a black, a black abaya, it's like wearing a uniform, you know, suddenly it's, I mean, people do jazz them up in different ways, like they'll have like beading and sequins and things, but um, it, it's, it's something completely different. But, you know, what I found very interesting about um, women in Saudi was that they, they would wear something that was very kind of sober on the outside. I mean, you can, you know, wear whatever color scarf you like. I mean, there's, there are things you can do, but then when they go inside, they take that off and it's the, this complete contrast because actually they've got beautiful clothes on. They've got amazing shoes, you know, hmm. they have henna all the way up their arms and their legs and like they they really look after themselves actually in a way more than than I was used to in England you know I was quite used to almost being a bit androgynous just kind of quite scruffy like <laughs> not really taking that much care of my parents didn't do my nails or anything like that and uh and then being a Saudi like the women really looked after themselves they did you know a lot of kind of um I guess what you could call self-care rituals but it was all very private it's inside rather than it's not visible on the outside so that was another dimension of the sort of visibility question that for me was was kind of always at the back of my mind you know how much is on show how much needs to be on show how much is it actually really good to keep something back and hold something back for yourself and it's still something I I I think about a lot you know in terms of my writing like how much do I share you know Mm -hmm. it's I love to share I love I'm complete oversharer in my (laughs) writing um I have to sort of edit things out oh god I can't say that so and so it's gonna kill me but um but it's different to be writing and sharing your thoughts and your feelings compared to I don't know there's there's they're just different dimensions of visibility I guess had you encountered some 
either internal or external conflict in the community uh, because of your performance tendencies that you you said you were in theater and we heard yeah. just a, a few minutes ago you're a beautiful performer a singer a guitar player a composer and you would perform um, at clubs you know on stages open mic yeah. nights that kind of thing jazz clubs yeah. was I'm curious to know, as you were trying to merge the, you know, modesty, humility mm. components <laughs> of of your faith um, with also, you know, this desire to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> as I was saying before, like when you don't feel like you can really express yourself in certain contexts, it pushes you further to express yourself in other ways, in artistic ways, in literature, maybe through the medium of art, you know, visual visual arts. It's sort of, it's a different kind of nakedness, really, but it's not a, it's like a halal nakedness, you know, it's, it's <laughs> not a physical one. And maybe people are just sort of, you know, maybe people fall in love with your ideas, but there's a distance, you can still be distant from people and I guess, protected in a way. I guess what, I don't know. what is what is halal nakedness? Can you explain what that phrase <laughs> means to you? Halal, halal means permissible, right? So it's like com- compared to haram, which is forbidden. Mm. So uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a very tricky question because there's a lot of differences of opinion among Muslims about how permissible it is for people, for women, particularly soloists, to sing alone in front of a mixed audience. There's you can do whatever you like if you're among among other women, but um, but to be in front of a mixed audience, a lot of you know, a lot of people will be against that, or at least very uncomfortable with that idea. Maybe they would insist that you sing in, in chorus with other women, so that you're, it's not all the attention on you. Mm. And um, you know, I can kind of understand it from one perspective. Like I have performed in bars, for example, where I felt quite exposed and not very comfortable. It wasn't really the right environment for me to be to be singing in. But then there are other environments that I have been in with an audience that is very conscious and that is very um you know interested in poetry in meaning and who are you know people who are seekers who aren't there to you know have a wild time it's they're actually there to really contemplate and music is something that is very 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 touching and can move people and it can transform your state instantaneously so that's 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 one of the interesting things about how my father came into Islam. That music was a bridge for him. A lot of his, um, you know, people from his cohort also became Muslim through music. He made an album as part of a, an outfit called uh, the Habibia, and the album was called If Man But New. You can find it on YouTube. There's lots of the the tracks on it. They recorded, I think, all in one in one go. Like they just improvised it all. Mm. But it was kind of it kind of became a bit of a cult classic. And there were people who would listen to that album. And they became Muslim. They they entered Sufism after listening to that album. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the classical Islamic world, music was used as a form of healing. They were used in hospitals, and it was quite a, a science. It was a developed science that people in different sort of states, particularly you know what we'd call now mental health, you know, having mental health problems, that certain modes, certain melodies would actually lift them out of it and they would actually help them heal. And I think that's something that we've kind of lost because um, a lot of Muslims are very afraid of, of crossing a line, which I find is a little bit sad. I, I, honestly, I think now music is a very, very special, a very um, powerful way of, of speaking to people and reaching people. Let's listen to a bit more of you. This is um, a Sufi devotional poem Uh, set to a different melody, kind of a mashup that you put up on Facebook recently. My guest is Medina Tanur Whiteman. She's a poet, a musician, a translator, author of the new memoir, The Invisible Muslim Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. You, Your husband is from Iran. You write about going to Iran um, with a, a toddler in tow not long after your marriage to Ali. What was your reception in Iran, another place that is um, a, a lot more strict 
in terms of mm-hmm. how women are to behave and to dress in public mm-hmm. compared to what you were raised with? Well, it was interesting because it was one of the places where I became more aware of how um, my whiteness kind of precedes me in a way. Like whiteness is so, um, it's been so used politically to um, subdue people and particularly in the form of beauty standards that going to Iran, Iran is one of the places that, despite being a, you know, outwardly seems like a very religious place, although actually only about 5% of Iranians go to Friday prayers. Um, but there's a lot of plastic surgery. It's one of the biggest places in the world for, for plastic surgery, particularly of women, but also of men. You find men who have those jobs and whatnot. And which really surprised me. And they get tattoos as well. The women will get their, their makeup tattooed on. And I was always told that, you know, you couldn't do this in Islam, that tattoos were really frowned on. Um, but so there were lots of surprises. There were lots of things that happened there that kind of made me go, oh, wow, I hadn't, I, I just totally pulled the rug, the, the Persian rug out from under my feet. <laughs> uh, instead of thinking I would like have these like leisurely conversations about Rumi and Hafiz and go to visit some like shrines or something. And we just ended up like eating nuts and drinking tea and, you know. <laughs> and, and getting having, makeovers, <laughs> having your eyebrows yeah, done. Exactly. And your, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was at this beauty salon. That's one of the most entertaining parts of my book, I think I've been told. Um, But yeah, to sort of, to have that kind of painful awareness that actually in the Muslim world, which is principally not white, there is this um, Orientalism that has been foisted upon people, like the the belief that Europeanness is is superior in many many ways. White, whiter it's... skin is is um, yeah is is admired. Lighter skin. Yeah, you, exactly. you even talk about Lighter how when skin. you were when you were a child growing up in the Pakistani family that was also Muslim in your community, it was like we want your daughters to marry our sons because of the light skin. Like that, that's yeah. considered more attractive and desirable. In a way, it's kind of fetishized and. So a lot, a lot of Muslims have been, especially in this, in South Asia, for example, in the Indian subcontinent, have been really. It's really, really been rammed down their throat that you know, the British, the English in particular, not just British but English, that everything about them, their you know, cultural mannerisms, their sports, cricket, you know, everything was sort of um, put on such a pedestal, and it was really ingrained in, and also the way that it, that the colonies were ruled, the the British particularly would. Um, take existing um, legislative structures and authority structures and basically just sort of program them to kind of carry out their their bidding and their Mm. their sort of propaganda so Mm. it would be coming from other brown people you know so this is why people talk about the colonial colonial mindset and it's still such a hard thing to overcome because it's been buried in there so deeply that whiteness or lightness is preferable. How how was that for you then to go into um, you know Muslim communities where on the one hand you feel like you don't quite belong, but also you're you know considered exotic and yeah. um, sought after. You know, to begin with, it's it, you feel you're made to feel a bit like a rock star, which is very sweet. And and I mean, not it's not sweet exactly. It's nice. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of I guess a pleasant experience initially. And I guess it's also a sort of an extension. Initially, it looks like part of that um, Muslim culture of generosity and welcoming. And, you know, they really believe that you you treat your guest as a king or a queen. So initially, it feels like it's part of that. And then you start sort of thinking, hang on a minute, is there something more to this? You know, and it really it does mess with your head in mm. a way because you start to think, hang on. I have these amazing, beautiful, talented, intelligent black sisters who are not getting marriage proposals. Why not? There is a lot of prejudice. There's an anti-blackness prejudice among Muslims that is, this year I think it's really been flushed to the surface and I think there has been some very interesting work begun. It's it's obviously a long process that's going to be going on for, I don't know, centuries probably. But um, there are many other kinds of invisible Muslims. I mean, my experience is, I guess, particular to being a white person in Europe. But, um, you know, it, Many people don't recognize black Muslims as Muslims. There can be Arabs who don't recognize black Muslims as Muslims, you know. Mm. So there are all these different kinds of um, iterations of this, um, of these, of these prejudices. And I mean, you can, you can really sort of see it as, as a form of white supremacy, really, that's been taken on. Did you wish that your skin was darker? Absolutely. 
Mm. Absolutely. I actually, the first poem in my poetry book, which is the first book I published, was called I Wish That I Was Black. Because uh, it really just felt like this is, I'm not in the right color. I'm not in the right color skin. Mm. This is just too, it's too weird. I look too light. I look sort of out of place, you know, in a sort of ghostly or almost like a ghostly kind of way. There's one place that you travel in your book, Medina Tenor Whiteman, where you you write that it felt like a homecoming, that, and that's Bosnia. Mm. Uh, a place where Muslims were targeted for genocide by Serbs and Croats. Mm. Um, and and these are Western European Muslims, right? Or at least European right, right. Muslims, white skin. It's a practically, you write, you write that it's practically a nation of invisible Muslims. <laughs> you didn't stick right. out at all. You just blended in. <laughs> what was that experience like for you? It was really beautiful. It was so, so, so healing, really. I mean, having spent places, spent time in places like um, I lived for nearly a year in East Africa. I was between um, mostly in Zanzibar and Dar es Salaam, mm. where I was really desperately trying to kind of immerse myself. I was studying Swahili. I got to a point where I kind of had the patter and I could sort of, I had the accent, I could almost if someone just heard me speaking I could almost pass myself up as off as a Swahili person but of course that wasn't how I would be treated hmm. um when people saw me so I was obviously different you know I was obviously different racially and so people would um sometimes give me respect in ways that made me balk you know like one time I was on a boat going between Zanzibar and Dar es Salaam and a man actually said to me Shkamor, which means I touch your feet and that's an expression of respect and I was a teenager. Hmm. This was a grown man. And it was a, 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 it's an expression of respect for older people, typically. But he gave that to me. And I don't know if it was an ironic thing or if it was like some knee-jerk reaction, like a reflex from colonial times or something like that. I don't know. But it was really shocking for me. I just thought, what? why would he have that respectful attitude towards me hmm. when I should be the one giving him the respect? He's, an, he's older than me. You know, that was quite shocking. And then, but then to go to a place like Bosnia, where even though we didn't speak the same language, Bosnians are very good with languages because, because uh, none of their films get dubbed. So, <laughs> so they watch uh, every, every Hollywood movie, every British movie, it's all in the original sounds. So they all, they often learn English really, really well. But despite that, I found they're very laid back people as well. They, they have this word actually, chafe, which sounds ironic what, given what chafe means in English. But um, their word chafe, it's like just chill. You know, it's just like the kind of Bosnian temperament. It's just, just have a tea and sit in the sun and just kind of relax. Even though there's, there's all this stuff, you know, there's, this, there's war, there's genocide, there's rape camps. I mean, there's horrible, hideous things in recent history for them snipers you know targeting children I mean really horrific things that would happen but they're still very very laid-back people which is is a, a huge lesson also for me you know to see people who've been through so much and are still so kind of good-natured mm. and um and now you've come full circle you're living in the place you were born Granada Spain mm. um in what way do you feel at home there you know, it's really interesting, apart from the fact that I, um, you know, Andalusian, Andalusian culture is very um, expressive and loud and warm and kind of all the things that I sort of felt that I couldn't really be growing up in England. And so it's been refreshing for me to sort of develop that, I guess, that side of my personality. But it's something else that I've been reflecting on recently that um, in in the US and in, um, in Canada, I've noticed people when they talk about... Um, um, indigenous sort of land recognition, like recognizing that they are on land, unconceded land that originally was inhabited by Mi'kmaq or, um, you know, Cree or like naming the people, indigenous people who used to live there. Mm -hmm. And being here, it's strange because actually if I was to do that, I would say this is land that was originally inhabited by Muslims, by, by European Muslims. And they're the people that I, whose names I should be recognizing and mentioning so that people don't forget that actually they were exiled many of them were exiled many of them were massacred actually 40 percent are thought to have stayed here and they've blended in and so there are still traces of them there but you have to be like a detective to find them in 
in Andalusian culture, but they're there, they're in the language. Are you saying that as a European Muslim yourself, that you feel in, to, in some way that this, that Granada is your homeland, your yeah, I indigenous? Guess so. It definitely has a feeling of that. Hmm. How does it feel to have found that? Oof. You spend a long time looking for home. It, it's, it's a very restful feeling. Kind of just feel like you've um, become whole again. Medina Tanur Whiteman is a poet, musician, translator, and her new memoir is The Invisible Muslim Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. Thank you for taking time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The United States has a different justice system for children who commit crimes. They're typically locked up separately from adult offenders and face different punishment. The underlying idea is that kids are still developing their brains, their behaviors, and the hope would be that after detention and treatment or rehabilitation, the teen could turn his or her life around. Education is foundational to that theory. So kids in the juvenile justice system spend a lot of their time taking classes while they're locked up so they don't fall behind. But too often that time studying behind bars turns out to be wasted for young people in the juvenile justice system. Nadia Mozafar is on the line to explain why. She's an attorney at the Justice Law Center. Ms. Mozafar, thank you very much for taking time today. Thank you so much for having me. A report you recently wrote about this indicates that there's a big problem with how credits, like school credits, class credits, right, that kids receive inside juvenile detention, how that transfers when they get out and want to go enroll like at a high school, a public high school. It just kind of explain how that plays out um, typically. Sure. So our organization, the Juvenile Law Center, we spend a lot of time working with young people and policies that impact young people in the juvenile justice system, especially young people that are in juvenile justice uh, facilities, whether they're long-term placements or short-term detention centers. And one thing that we have found over and over again from talking to young people who are involved in the system or through other advocates that work with them is that young people go into the system, they take various courses or do uh, different education activities inside facilities, and when they leave those facilities, and try to re-enroll in their community high school, they'll find that the work that they did, the credits, um, they might not receive uh, credit for the work that they completed. The work um, might transfer over as an elective credit instead of credit that they actually need for graduation. And oftentimes uh, records or the paperwork associated with the work that they completed is not transferred in a timely manner or is simply lost. And the consequences of this are, you know, there's numerous consequences to this, but very basically what ends up happening is young people are having to repeat courses, repeat entire grade levels, and really fall behind in their quest for graduation. Mm. And this is a group of kids that just by nature of the fact that they've been in trouble with the law, they're probably also at higher risk of just calling it quits, dropping out, maybe getting involved in other illegal activity. If they face a setback like this in the, you know, that they didn't ask for and they did everything they were supposed to do. (laughs) So why, you know, why are they, why are they facing this hurdle? That must be, um, that, that seems like the dropout would be a real risk. Yes. And so we know that overall young people who are involved in the juvenile justice system and especially young people who are in placements are about two thirds of them drop out of school even after leaving these placement facilities. And in our research, one of the causes of this is really the devastating impact of not receiving credit for the work that they did. And we also have to remember that a lot of these young people faced instability in their lives even before entering the justice system. And so 
They might have moved around a lot um, because they uh, were in the foster care system, or maybe they faced a lot of different um, exclusionary discipline, what we call they might have been suspended or expelled in the in class um, in their schools beforehand. So even before entering the system, kids are often um, already behind, maybe not having their special education needs met. So um, these just compound those problems. Is it the high school that's deciding not to count the credit as a math credit or like not give them full credit for for what they did behind bars? Well, one problem is that across the country, there are numerous different systems that impact whether or not a young person gets credit. So it could be the school district making that decision. It could be the individual school. Um, It could be whether a staff person is taking time to really understand what credit um, a student earned or what information, what what knowledge the student gained versus just, you know, doing a cursory glance and realizing that the names on the courses don't match. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem that we found is that there isn't a consistent way these decisions are being made and there isn't consistencies between school district or schools. And so that makes an impact on whether who's making the decision and what decision is getting made. Does the quality, how well does the quality of a class in juvenile detention match up to the quality of that same class if it were happening in a local high school, though? Yes. So one of the concerns that we found in our study is that the one reason why young people often don't get credit for the work that they completed is because of the poor quality of classes. And this can manifest in in various ways. So oftentimes these facilities don't have teachers with the proper certifications or they don't offer the um, correct classes that someone would need or maybe doesn't offer uh, the lab sciences that someone would need or the Spanish classes. And so um, it's, it's the fact that the teachers may not be qualified to teach the course. It could be that the particular coursework that's necessary is not provided. And then we even go to more detailed issues where, um, you know, maybe the, the facility isn't offering the type of uh, seat time or just the time that the young person needs to be in the facility as would otherwise mm-hmm. uh be happening in a classroom. And and the other important point I think we try to emphasize is that even with perfect education inside facilities, which we are so far from achieving right now, the other problem is that there's a lot of trauma associated with putting a young person, taking them away from their community, their family, putting them inside facilities where there's often uh, other conditions concerns. Young people might be subject to physical abuse or strip searches or things like solitary confinement. And all of these things also harm a young person's ability to get an education, even before you start thinking about what specific education programs are provided. Mm. So they're already starting at a disadvantage. And how long would they typically spend? How much credit are we talking about that a young person might accrue and want to have transfer? Like years? I mean, you know, an entire freshman year, for example, or are we talking just maybe about like one semester typically? And I mean, it it really does vary. I mean, a year is not out of the possibility, you know, out of the realm of possibility. And that certainly happens for a lot of a lot of uh, young people. But it's also the shorter amount of time can also be problematic because, um, for example, then if you are in a in a facility from December to April, you are missing part of your first year fall semester, part of your first semester, and then you're also missing part of your second semester because you're changing schools in the middle of the term. And in many many school systems, that would mean that you don't get credit then for your first or your second semester, even if you've spent about you know six months in class. Um, the way that the terms match up mean that you don't actually get credit. And so one thing we talked about in our report is how it's really important to set up um, systems to award students partial credit or let them make up credits because we understand that a young person's going in and out of a facility may not carefully coincide all the time with the semester or the terms that the school is running under. Are young people typically incarcerated in the same state where they will live when they get out? 
I think that is generally the case, um, but they're not always incarcerated in um, in the community where they went to where they would be attending public school. So they would, um, for example, they may be enrolled in a different school district or a different school system once they enter the system. I ask because I wondered, it it sounds like this is a problem that a state could address. It could say, you know, our young people are going into these state facilities um, and you know, so it's a state school board <laughs> solution here. Is that, Am I getting that right? Is that where the fix starts is by creating a statewide system for how these credits are going to be handled and transferred? Yes, that that's certainly a statewide approach is certainly the right way to go. And we think state legislation is really important to address this issue to ensure that even when someone is moving from one school district to one school di- to another school district, there are some standard practices and some standard understanding for what a young person learned inside the facility and ensuring that they get credit for that. And what, what could be done to improve the quality inside these facilities? Uh, is that something who I mean, who's is it usually the local school district that's responsible for sending the teachers and the resources and the supplies? Or is the, is it the justice system that's taking charge of the educational <laughs> uh, needs of these kids? So it really does vary. In some instances, it is the local school district. Sometimes it's the school district where the young person, where the facility is located. Sometimes it's the school district where the young person is coming from. And then sometimes it's the state having a, a whole different system w- within facilities. And the this inconsistency itself is part of part of the problem. And so therefore, if we were able to create some standards that all districts have to follow or some rules and guidance to provide all all districts, that would really help this this um, solution. And the, the other recommendation that we have is dedicated staff so that regardless of, you know, which district you're moving to, that a family or a young person doesn't have to navigate these systems on their own, that there's other um, trained staff that are there to help them at with the, these at the deten- systems. At, at the detention center or at the high school, like a dedicated staff person who understands how to receive a child who's come from detention? I mean, ideally both. So there would be dedicated staff within facilities that can, you know, as soon as you come in, can assess your educational needs, understand the courses that you need to take, um, and then help transition when you're, when a young person's ready to leave the facility, help make sure all of their records, all of their papers get transferred to their new school. And then there's folks on the other side at the new school that are receiving all of this information in a timely matter and analyzing it to ensure that the young person gets into the courses that they need and gets the credit for the work that they did. So it's a really um, team, it, it really needs to be a team approach that and the you know various agencies, the, the justice agency, the schools, they all need to work together in order to ensure that the students don't fall through the cracks. Nadia Mozafar is an attorney at the Juvenile Law Center, where she focuses on juvenile justice and child welfare systems. Thanks for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. And that's it for today's episode of Carefully Curated Conversations from the Archive. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.